This is Philip Camella, and while I'm taking a short vacation, I'm rebroadcasting one of my favorite shows. And this one is with Pam Atwater, one of the world's leading researchers of near-death experiences. And reading her books and talking to her, it really brings home the point that these experiences are most likely real, which means something. Listen in. Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. The concept of an afterlife, or another plane of existence, is one that has fascinated the mind since the beginning of thought. The earliest spiritual writings from the Upanishads, for example, talk about the soul leaving the body and being reincarnated into a different physical form. And then there is moksha, this release from the material realm to a spiritual one. The Buddha sought nirvana. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to sit by his father. In a heavenly kingdom and in Islam, a day of judgment will come, with some going to paradise and others to hell. The remarkable thing about this topic is that the world's literature is filled with accounts of people who have in fact died according to medical definitions of the term, but have returned to life and thus lived again to tell their stories. Now one of the foremost researchers on this topic of near-death experiences is my guest today, Dr. P.M.H. Atwater. She is the author of more than 15 books, including Future Memory, Behind the Indigo Children, We Live Forever, and I Died Three Times in 1977, The Complete Story. She has been researching near-death phenomenon since 1978 and is a world authority on the topic. She's sought after as a workshop leader at many spiritual, holistic gatherings, and she's addressed audiences at such venues as the International Association for Near-Death Studies, the United Nation, and in many other countries. Her books have been translated into over 12 languages, and she's also appeared on the Larry King Live, Regis and Kathy Lee, and Geraldo. Her newest book is entitled Dying to Know You, Proof of God, in the near-death experience, which we'll be talking about. Dr. Atwater, welcome to the show. Well, hi, hi. <laughs> hi to everybody. <laughs> Great morning. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's really good talking to somebody that's, that's got such a rich uh, background and experience with this fascinating topic. And so I'd like to get things started here a little bit, um, which is what got you involved and interested in this phenomena of near-death experiences. I died. Okay, that's a good. That's, that's a good. That's a good reason. Well, that I think I was going to say that at the beginning, but I but I think that's what makes you unique. Is that <laughs> you're good. is that you're both a researcher and you're a and you have personal experience doing it. And so well, why don't you, you know? So, go ahead. Hey, I died three times in three months in 1977. I look back at it and call it the heavenly sledgehammer effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why don't you why don't you talk about that a little bit about and and you know it's and about how that formed your your mission in in life here because since that time it's obviously had a big effect on you on multiple levels. Oh, turn we'll me around completely. Yes. Yeah, so, so so why don't you talk about a little bit about what you yourself experienced and then how that sort of molded you. Well, remember you. I had I, three three of them, so right. I'll just okay. be quick here and say um, it started with a miscarriage and extreme hemorrhaging. That was January two. Uh, January 4, two days later, was a major thrombosis in the right thigh vein, followed by the worst case of phlebitis specialists ever heard of, let alone seen. And three months later, March 29, we still don't know for sure what killed me, 
but it was a heart attack. What it was, there was just no vital signs. And then later that fall, I had three major relapses. You know, most people don't realize that when we're talking about the near-death experience, most of these experiences come from violence or trauma. Right. So you're dealing with, you know, rebuilding a body on top of this otherworldly journey you just had. And in my third near-death experience, uh, many things happened, but among them was a voice spoke to me, a very special voice. It wasn't like a guide or guardian or angel or any of these kinds of voices. You know, we don't, we don't have words in our language, Philip, to describe. I mean, it was so big. It was bigger than big. It's like it fills a universe. Yeah. And this voice said, and I quote, test revelation. Mm. You are to do the research. One book for each death. Mm. And it did not name book one, although I really feel that was coming back to life, which was my first major book. And the second one was Future Memory, which is still out. And and then the third one was... a. a a specific manual that I'm still that I'm that I'm just now working on, uh, but of course I wrote many books like the Big Book of Near Death Experiences and Near Death Experiences: The Rest of the Story. And my research base now is nearly 4,000 child and adult experiencers of near death states. So yeah, I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station, so I use police investigative techniques as my protocol, and I'm very thorough. And, uh, yeah, I've been doing this since 1978, after I met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in O'Hare Airport. Um, her plane to Europe was late for about an hour, so, um, and, and I knew what she looked like from, you know, newspapers and such. So I walked right up to her, introduced myself, and we sat on a, be- on a bench like a couple of old schoolgirls. Yeah. <laughs> and I told her what I went through, and she was the one that said, she validated me. She said, yeah. you are a near-death survivor. She didn't use the term experiencer. Yeah. And then she gave me that term near-death experience because I've never heard of it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think that comes across very uh, clearly in your book Dying to Know You is your emphasis on the scientific or repeatability aspect of this. Uh, There's one quote in your book that I wrote down, it's pattern of after effects is what verifies the experience, not the other way around. And, 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 and we've got to recognize that, Philip. Right. Your re- most of your researchers do not. Um, your skeptics don't, um, don't look at it at all. It's the, it's the after effects, right. the pattern of physiological and psychological after effects. That's what verifies the experience. Right. We get all hung up on the light show yeah. with a predominant storyline, right. and when we forget, that's only half the story. Yeah, and I think that this is good a good time for this because with uh, Eben Alexander's uh, publication of the Proof of Heaven, you know that hit right. a, you know that hit a nerve in the publishing world, and it was a bestseller. Uh, for a number of reasons, probably because he was a neurologist and it was readable. Um, and so th- the concept of near-death experiences, I think, is becoming more uh, more in the forefront here. But also, we, we, we have to deal with the, with the traditional scientific skepticism of these experiences. And that's why when you talk about the repeatability of the after effects, I think that's powerful. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research on this point here and what the the similarity of after effects tells us about about near death? Well, if we're, if we're you know, taking a broad look at the skepticism, for instance, um, a lot of them... Uh, make claims about the tunnel. Right. The tunnel is a media myth, Philip. Yeah. Back in 1982, Gallup Poll did their first big scientific survey on near-death experiences. Only 9%, um, you know, reported a tunnel. Even today, not that many. Yes, some people do. Most people do not. Right. Worldwide, 
you don't get reports of tunnels at all. So all these skeptics coming out about the eye and, and, and all these things that happen at death are not looking at the facts. Yeah. I can go through every one of those reports and tear them apart yeah. just by looking at the facts. The skeptics are simply not doing their research. Right. Okay. So, okay. So, so let's talk about the skeptical uh, perspective here, because this is this is clearly something that interests me, because uh, you know my sense of this of the near death experience, just like many other things that don't fit the sci- the current scientific model, is that the reality of them has not really uh, been accepted into the oh. into the mainstream now. And, and, they're overlooking some okay. of the facts. Let okay. me give you an okay. example. This is, for, this is for my cases. This is a, a, a woman, oh, probably in her early 30s, I'm not sure. She's driving out in the countryside and suddenly slammed from the left by a, by a truck right. that's going really, really fast, uh, dies on impact, but they think maybe they can bring her back, so they rushed her to the hospital. They used these wonderful new resuscitation techniques. They brought her back. And all she's talking about is her dad. She thought she saw her father. Yeah. And her father told her all about how he had died, where and under what conditions, and why he had lived. Uh, um, he was prepared to die. Uh, he was ready. It was his time. Why she was here. But um, all of her job wasn't done. You know, she had to come back. And so she's so animated, the doctors can't work on her. Hmm. So they go over to the waiting room, you know, where the family is now gathering. And, and they said, you know, what's this stuff about the father? And everybody said, well, obviously she's hallucinating. The father's in excellent health. One of them had talked to him that very morning. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the father. So the doctor goes back, tells his patient this, and she becomes even more animated. So the doctor, being a little peeved, goes back again and said, get that father on the telephone now so he can talk to his daughter. Well, lots and lots of phone calls. (laughs) (laughs) Come to find out that the father had died five minutes before the daughter did, and in exactly the same way he told the daughter. Yeah. That's yeah. oxygen deprivation. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a remarkable story. And what? But what does what does that tell you about about near death experiences? What what does the takeaway from that story? Because I did I did read that, and that was a powerful story. What does that tell you as a researcher, Doctor Atwater? Well, the takeaway is that there's more to life than we think there is. Yeah. There's more to us as human beings than, the, than we think there is. That obviously there are other dimensions or ways of living. Obviously, to me, um, our body does not define us. Yeah. So, so I, I have to look then um, through more keen eyes to tell the difference between the people's stories and what really is happening in their lives. I have to look at the physical part as well as the emotional, the mental, you know, and the spiritual. But you've got to look at the physical, too. And the physical defies science. And what do you mean by that, that the physical defies science? Well, how can you account for this Yeah, one? yeah. Well, I think that, you see, this, this is a... A very important point here, and you do bring it up in your book, and it's it's I think it's one of the I would say two or three uh, foremost controversial issues right now, and that is where does consciousness arise? This, uh, and I think yeah. it's, I think it's becoming more and more front and center. And specifically, what I mean is that the standard orthodoxy is that consciousness arises from the dead matter of the brain that through some synchronicity of particles neurons in the brain there's some emergent property that creates this thing we call consciousness if that was true then when the brain died or when the heart stops beating then there should be no consciousness of anything 
Look, right. science is getting slapped every which way right. by these new um, new discoveries that are just coming out. For instance, we now know scientifically, it's been scientifically verified that DNA speaks two languages. Right. And, 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 you know, that second language is the energetics. It is the, uh, the frequency modulation that directs and manages and controls and processes the DNA. In other words, what we thought was 97% junk DNA is the major part of the DNA that enables the particles, the codons, the genes to function at all. Without the energetics, the other couldn't exist. So take a little jump here. What that's saying is the particle and the wave are the same thing simultaneously. Nonlinear and linear are the same thing simultaneously. What it's saying is that when you're looking at a person, be you a psychic, intuitive, or just sensitive, and you're seeing like an aura around the person, or you're seeing a, a, a field of some kind around the person, guess what? Yeah. You're looking at DNA. Yeah. Well, it just, really? yeah, it just it just reminds me of what Sir James Jean said almost a hundred years ago, which is that the universe is is starting to look more and more like a big thought than a big machine. This this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with uh, world-renowned near-death researcher uh, Dr. P. M. H. Atwater. Talking about her new book, Dying to Know You, and about her extensive research into this fascinating topic. And, you know, I just mentioned Sir James Jeans and about his notion that, you know, the world looks more like a big thought than a big machine. And that's sort of where things are heading because, uh, you know, the DNA example is, you know, I think is, is you're referencing epigenetics and this notion that. Um, we're not determined by our genes. That it's not a one. There's not a one-to-one correlation between a gene and an action or a behavior. Uh, that that there is beliefs, intention that that also controls uh, who we are and what we are. And, and well, if, from now they've been able to actually detail that. Yeah. To go beyond epigenetics and say DNA speaks two languages. Yeah. And that just. That, you know, that just turns everything around on its ear. Yeah, yeah, it really, okay, so let, let's let be, um, let's talk about something here that a lot of people probably um, associate the notion of near death or the afterlife with a religion. Because all sorts, you know, different religions talk about sort of different forms of afterlife. And as we know, uh, many of them, sort of preach the exclusive route to the afterlife. And, you know, you have to follow the dictates of one or other religion in order to have a shot at the afterlife. What has your research told you about whether that's the right approach? Well, yes and no. Uh, Yes, in the sense of how you live your life does make a difference. Yes, it does. But do you have to live your life according to Hoyle, according to exact rules and regulations? No. Uh, it's how you live it, your intention, what you do. That's what sets up that resonance factor. And that's very important. Let's talk about the resonance factor. Yeah. The resonance factor is, is that deep inner you. It's not who you think you are. It's who you really are. So at your core, that frequency of vibration, who you really are, when you die, that resonance factor determines where you go. Not your religion, not your church, the resonance within you, who you are, not who you think you are, who you really are. So that determines where you go. As near as I can tell, from all these thousands of people that I've been with and had sessions with and spoken with uh, for all these decades, that, that once you die, the other side, it, it's sort of, you know, I'll use the analogy, it's sort of like a layer cake. And there's lots and lots and lots of different levels. And they're, they're all separated by frequencies of vibration. 
and and there are levels that are very dense and slow moving and kind of hard to be in there. Um, I think that's what we call hell. There are levels that are very very fine and uplifting and 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 pleasant and of course you know I, I think that's what we call heaven. And, and you go to wherever. But you know, with all these people, what I noticed is there's no bottom and there's no top. Hmm. In other words, you're not going to rot forever in hell, and you're not going to spend the rest of your days, however many they are, floating on a cloud playing a harp. Yeah. It, it just <laughs> it isn't so. Yeah. And what is so, what I noticed about this construct or this process or whatever you want to call this form uh, that we could call heaven and hell, all these layers, what I noticed was that it's moved by choice. Hmm. So we still have choices on the other side. We can wake up, we can stay asleep, we can learn, we can change, we can alter. And, and when I look at that, it, it, it just fills me with so much awe that, yeah. that anything could be so fair. Yeah, it's, it seems as if that there is, so in other words, there's free will on the other side. Yes, there is. Yeah, there's free will. And I, I want to emphasize something you said that I think is one of the most important things that we could understand and you talked about this residence and the and the deep and the deepness of right. uh, or the depth that controls who we are because it reminds me so much of one of my favorite uh, quotes from the Upanishads and I don't know the whole one but it, it but part of the line is you are what your deep driving desire is and, and, and you, you know, literally are. Yeah, and, that's and your resonance factor. Right, and so many of us get caught on the surface, and this is not anything that is really profound because how many of us have doubted as we're sitting down when we're young praying whether we really believe the words we're saying or, or whether, whether reciting the same you know, prayer is, right. really, is really heartfelt or whether going to Mass or the synagogue, whatever, once a week, uh, really satisfies your 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 debt to God. <laughs> you know, I mean, so many of us doubt that because it's not what we're really thinking, and yeah. and that that is that is so important. It's sort of like you've got to be true to yourself uh, and realize that it is your deep driving desire that that determines what we ultimately are. And you know, uh, Doctor Atwater. There's certain things that you can't argue with, and I think that's one of them. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you. I don't think you could. I don't think you could argue with that. It's like saying what you really think is who you really are, not not your not the facial expressions or your mechanical motions through space and time. It's what you really. It's what you really say. Mm -hmm. The the other thing I want to point out here that I think is something that we get sort of bogged down in is the sort of metaphorical historic pictures of heaven and hell uh sort of like poetry you know the the as you said the the harp players and the clouds and the guys with long beards yeah <laughs> you know and it's and as you and as you and you said you know um it's not like that no so i'd like you to just you know so many people are wondering you know what it is really like you you mentioned the um the voice and and one of the things that is different about your book is that you are collecting sort of something and summarizing so many different accounts uh, of of near death experiences well we have to be very clear here okay. about what this book is okay. Dying to Know You, Proof of God in a Near-Death Experience, is the only book yet written that is from the collective in the voice of the collective about the collective. That's good. In other words, it's not a research book. It's not a, a personal story. It's not an opinion piece. It's not religion or spirituality. It is the people themselves being direct about what they saw, what they felt, what happened to them, what happened after this was all over in their lives, 
how they change. So it's the people. This is a book that the collective put together in the sense that I've been out there for nearly four decades. I've been summing up the stories of thousands of people. This is their material. Um, it's not my voice. It's their voice. Yes. It's not the kind, you know, it's, it, you know it, I've written a lot of books that, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of those books, but yeah. I would never have chosen to write this book, ever. I was led to write it. This is, this is not the kind of book that I would do. You know, it's a, it's a relatively small book, but it's a special book yeah. because it's the people speaking for themselves. Yeah, and so what, what are some of the common points that the collective is saying here? Because that, that, I think, is an important thing here. Now, you, got, you have the adults and the children, but why don't you talk about one or the other? But what, what joins, what to you are the key th- themes that join these stories? Well, certainly, as near as I can tell, there's, a, there's like 12 heavens and 12 hells. So there's a lot of different environments you can go to. So some of these stories about life on the other side being like this life, only maybe brighter and better, um, that's true on some of the levels. On other levels, it is not true. So it depends on where you go. I, I think that the common denominator for me here is that, that, that there's no God judging you. God doesn't judge you. You judge yourself. Yes. And you wind up wherever it is, again, that you're the most comfortable, that you resonate with, where you fit. You wind up where you fit. Um, so they go into things like um, uh, the inner spaces where a person could seem to be stuck. And they're only stuck there because of a vow or determination. Or maybe they want to stick around for a while. You know, you've heard lots of stories of people who've lost loved ones and they see them again or they hear them again or they smell them again. Yeah. Well, some of these people who are in the process of dying uh, decide to stick around, so they do. Yeah. Uh, so you, you get all kinds of stories, but what I like are the stories I can verify. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that, that is, um, again, a powerful portion of your book. And you mentioned one. Uh, I thought the one you had a story in here. Maybe you could you could talk about the uh, the communist uh, dissident who was run over a few times and then was in a morgue. Uh, why don't you yeah, why don't you talk George about and I, huh? yeah yeah why don't you why don't you why don't you tell the listeners about that one because that one was was oh un- and it's so true it's unbelievable you know, yeah um, George was a communist dissident before that was popular <laughs> and he lived in Georgia. The country of Georgia, not, you know, not the United States state of, but the country of Georgia. And uh, um, he was very loud, and he finally had an opportunity to get himself and his family out of Russia and out of Georgia and uh, and out of the communist bloc um, and, and to go to Texas. There was a religious group in Texas that would take him. So they, they picked up his wife and his son and his daughter and all their stuff, and then they came back with another car for him. However, that car, in that car, was the KGB, and they, they ran him down. They went, they went back and forth over his body with the car just to make sure he was dead. So when they rushed the body to the morgue, of course, the guy was, was dead. Yeah. I mean, he really, really was. Um, so they, brought him, they put him in the morgue. And he was in the morgue for three days, and, um, you know, we can't be sure what the temperature was of, of that morgue, uh, the, the trays where they put him, uh, cold storage. But as near as we can tell, he was, he was either frozen or, you know, really cold for all that time. And all that time that he was stored in a, in a vault in the morgue, um, he had a very active life. He discovered that he could get out of his body. <laughs> he discovered he could go anywhere he wanted to go. 
Um, and he was just absolutely delighted. Now, this man was a doctor. So, therefore, he was an educated man. He wanted, you know, all of, he wanted to do all kinds of things. And among the things that he did, a couple of them that, the, the, that just, um, the skeptics just ran into a wall on. And, and I also spent some time with his wife, Ninos. Hmm. So, you know, I, I was able to verify that this particular story. She was in a graveyard picking out lots for his body. Hmm. And now bear in mind, this is a widow. She's got two little kids. So all the time that she's in the graveyard trying to pick out a lot, in her mind, she's going through a list of, of suitors or future husbands yeah. that would be a father to her two children. Right. So, so she, each one, a list of, you know, she's going through these lists and these men. Well, <laughs> when, when George... Uh, George did revive <laughs> under very unusual circumstances because th this was so this was a big deal. Yeah. So so they had to do an autopsy and they had to make the papers because this was a very big deal. So uh, um, the autopsy team and um, by the way, um, one of the members of the autopsy team was his own uncle. <laughs> they they began to do the teacup tea cut on the autopsy table, that is to say, um, uh, the bar of, of the tea, the, the, the crossbar is, is the lower abdomen, so they split that open, they were going open uh, the front of his body uh, with the knives, and, and his eyes opened. Well, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. So the doctor just closed his eyes and kept cutting. He opened his eyes again. They didn't think anything of it. They kept cutting. And he opened his eyes the third time and kept them open. Yeah. And it so freaked out the doctors that, that the, the head, the chief, had to jump back and had to take a one-month leave yeah. of absence. Yeah, I think, I think that would do that to anybody. I think I, this is the kind of thing that happens on TV. That's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. this is real, folks. Yeah. This isn't yeah. make-believe. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you know, it takes about three days for your tongue to, um, you know, your tongue swells in death and it fills yeah. up the mouth cavity. Yeah. So it took about three days for the tongue to go down to where he could talk. And among the things he said to the doctors and nurses and family around him, uh, he told his wife, he, he, he said all the names. That that she was thinking in her head, all of the all of the lists she made for each mm. one. Yeah, and she was so shocked. Yeah, that she couldn't be with him for a year. Yeah, that that is that's an amazing story. This for is a whole year. Yeah, and and I asked, I asked Nina why not? Why weren't you glad you got your husband back? She said I had no privacy. Yeah, <laughs> he could get into my mind and read all my thoughts. I yeah. had no privacy. Yeah, that that's an amazing story. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. And I'm speaking with Doctor Atwater here about uh, near death experiences and her new book, Dying to Know You: Proof of God in the Near Death Experience. And it's stories like that, Doctor Atwater, that are real eye openers uh, to to uh, highlight that that well, term. Well, you can't deny that <laughs> yeah. one, I'll tell well, you. <laughs> well, a lot of, I mean, this is what it comes down to. I think that when when many of us begin reading these kind of stories, and for me, it, it, it was the parapsychology uh, uh, accounts uh, 20, 30 years ago when I was doing my own research on this, and we all like to read these accounts and, you know, these mysterious things, and your death experiences are similar. But then over time, over time, I think it's the duty of the scientific mind to find a place for these experiences in the real world. And that, that is that, in other words, you can't just consider all these things to be outliers from some crazy people because there's too many of them. There's too many of these accounts that cannot be so easily dismissed. And so to me, that leads to the conclusion that we need to change our perspective and find a way to account for these experiences in a new in a new theory, new worldview. And that that's what I'm all about. And so what do you, what do you so 
what do you think and about what what we need to do in order to change our viewpoints on near-death experiences? Because I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of skeptics. You've already mentioned it. But what do you think has to happen in order for... for well, first of all, you need to listen to them. Yeah, good point. Without judgment. Yeah, that's a good point. That's number one. Yeah. Just listen. Yeah. Forget about your ideas. Forget about your thoughts. Yeah. Forget forget about your druthers. Yeah. Just listen. Yeah. And then if you want to dialogue a little bit, that's fine. But the next thing you do is you do your observation work, because it's what I do. What... What is different in their lives now? Right. Talk to their family. Talk to their neighbors. Talk to their health care givers. Talk to their bosses and their coworkers. Find out if there's a difference. If there is a difference, cross-check it to make sure somebody's not um, exaggerating. Find out how real that is. And if it is indeed real, then you have to stop and ask yourself, what does this say about life and what really is life? Yeah. What is this saying to me about life? What is this saying to me about death? Because the near-death experience, factually, says more about life than it does death. You know, the greatest fear we have in living out our life on earth is not what might happen to us, but what might be expected from us if we recognized who we are. Because that's the, that's the question you are faced with, when you do all the other work, then you have to stop and say, who am I? What am I capable of? So, so, so what, what do these experiences tell us about who we are? Well, <laughs> I, I'll give you some little stories here. Um, um, you know, it's common knowledge that most experiences come back knowing or feeling or having been told that their job is not done or that they have a mission to perform, they can't stay. Well, this happened to, to one little kid. Um, I think he was, in, he was in Sweden, anyway, one of the Scandinavian countries. His name was Olaf Sunden. And he was about maybe 12, 11, 12, something like that. And in his experience, he was shown invention after invention after invention, and uh, the chemical quotients of the universe were explained to him. Well, <laughs> I mean, he's a kid. But he's smart enough to know he's going to have to go to school all the way up. He's going to have to go to university, get all these degrees. And then when he's got all the sheepskins, then he can start acting on what he was shown in his near-death experience. That is exactly what he did, Philip. Hmm. And today, he has over 100 chemical patents. Wow. He got them all from his experience. Yeah. We've got another guy um, who came back knowing that it is his job to save the world's tallest, strongest, oldest trees. Hmm. So he's doing that. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm, I mean... Uh, it's like you go back to the source for, like, uh, relearning your 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 life lesson or something. You know? for, for a reset. Yeah, yeah, a reset. Well, this this leads to the, the question, uh, and you have a personal experience with this, which is, where is this other realm? We're, we're so, I mean... It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Okay. Philip, stop, yeah. stop, stop. Okay. Philip! Go ahead. We only see... Eight to ten percent of the electromagnetic spectrum. Right. Everything else is either infra or ultra to our faculties of perception. It's all there. It is all there. It didn't go anywhere. We just don't see it. Yeah. So we have experiences like 
this that begin to sensitize us, that we can be able to see and feel and respond more. We have prayer and meditation that begins to sensitize us. We have different techniques people can go through, um, maybe becoming psychic or more intuitive or more creative or more innovative. All of these techniques begin to open the door. They begin to uh, uh, fade this, these differences so that our faculties of perception grow larger, more expansive. They begin to accelerate. When that happens, we start to see, feel, and hear more of what has always been there. Yeah, and I, you know, lately, as I've been doing more reading on, on uh, afterlife, near-death experiences, uh, I've, co I've come to the conclusion that we're either talking about other levels of consciousness or other dimensions, and it could be the same thing. Uh, it could so, be both. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true, because, you know, in, in, the, in the classic sense of the word, uh, or, or the classic uh, maybe childhood sense of heaven, you know, I was always thinking, oh, you're supposed to look up, at, up to the stars above the sky, you know, and that's where heaven is. Uh -huh. But actually, when you think about it, we're actually, to me, the truth is we're looking at a higher level of consciousness, or it could be a lower level of consciousness or a different level of consciousness. I mean, these are all adjectives that we may have to flip around a little bit. But it makes so much more sense, and I wonder if you agree with this, to view life as really living in a in a sea, a sea of consciousness, and we just and we just or an ocean of consciousness, and we just uh, right now we're experiencing one level of it. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially when you uh, you look at all the uh, what the children and the adults are saying to us. And among the things they are saying to us is that once you get on the other side, that the world is breathing. Everything is breathing. And, and, and the kids and, and the adults talk about this all the time. It's as if the whole universe, it's as if all of creation is breathing. It's alive. It's moving. It undulates. There are sparkles like a circuit board. Yeah. It's alive. Um, and, 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 you know, if you take the word, or, or the couple of words, and, and you look at the anesthesia, or the, where those words came from, the words Holy Spirit literally mean the breath of God yeah. breathing. Yes. The breath of God breathing. So they talk about expansion and contraction, as if the whole universe is breathing and undulating in wave-like circuitry all the time. Yeah. You know, when, when adults talk about God, seldom are they met by any kind of being, usually this incredible light. Right. And and they equate this light with God. Yeah. And the average adult will say, that light is more powerful than 10,000 suns. Can you imagine something that powerful? Yeah. It fries you instantly, yeah. but there's no pain. That light knows your name. That night light knows all about you. You can't fool it. You can, you can discuss things with it. You know, you can talk to this light. But, you know, this, is, this light is all packed, and it's all loving and all forgiving. The children, however, are often met by beings on the other side, like a father figure, yeah. uh, maybe a grandfather figure. But what I like with the kids is, very often, <laughs> leave it to a kid, they'll go up to this figure and say, is that what you really look like? <laughs> and instantly, that, that father figure bursts into this incredible light. Mm. And and they do the same thing with angels. You know, many of them are met by angels with wings. Right. And they'll ask, you know, is this what you really look like? And the angels, too, will burst into light. Yeah. 
it's 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 as if right it's as if it's as if the the child is picturing in their own mind what quote unquote God is supposed to look like, and when they and when they when they ask the question like burst of, they burst their own self perception or, or their 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 whole their own self projection of what yeah when we're talking about God God doesn't have a gender really God doesn't have a gender and um. Many of them, when they come back, no longer use the term G-O-D. A lot of them do, not all of them. Sometimes they'll change it to, like, source place or core or, or the greater good or the force, the all, the one, that which cannot be named. Uh, but it's still this idea, well, I'm not going to call it an idea. It's this reality that there is a God. You come back knowing God. None of this stuff about belief, because belief implies doubt. These people come back knowing that God exists, God is real, that there really is a powerful, powerful creator, intelligent factor, existent, in all of creation. Yeah, I, I think that that uh, brings up a lot of topics I, I want to tie together here. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. P.M.H. Atwater, a noted researcher uh, on life uh, on life after death and near-death experiences. Her new book is entitled Dying to Know You, Proof of God in a Near-Death Experience. And by the way, she's also the author of about 15 other books. I, I want to I want to bring some things together here, and this is part of my own um, sort of mission to join science and spirituality or get them closer together, because what you're what you're saying to me about this this field of consciousness of spirit is is really looking at what others call the quantum field from a different perspective. And we know from quantum theory, and you touch upon it in your book a little bit. I'm sure you've you've uh, you've touched upon it elsewhere. We know from quantum theory that the world does not exist of particles; that it really is a field. But in science, let me emphasize this point: in science, we want to separate the observer from the specimen, from the world, and so we call it a field, as if we're not part of the field. But the, but the truth <laughs> the truth the truth of the matter is we are part of the field and it's yep. and as soon as you go there, you're basically where where we're at with this with this unified consciousness. What do you, I mean, doctor? Doctor, what do you? I mean, that's that's sort of where I think things are heading, and maybe maybe well, um, that's obvious. Yeah, I mean it's absolutely obvious. Yeah, it's and it's a. I mean, how can you analyze something when you are that something? Right, 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 right. <laughs> it's 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 a really and and for those who want to you know get into this, I mean, I would recommend I recommend this book before, but uh, the Quantum Enigma by one of my first guests on this show. Uh, Bruce Rosenblum and Fred Kuntner, they talk about this, and there's so many books out there about the observer effect and what do you do about the observer in quantum theory, but what Dr. Atwater and I are talking about here is that the, the fact of the matter is you can't separate the observer from the observed, or put differently in less scientific terms, you can't separate us from the world, we are part of the world, um, and and I assume uh, doctor, we are part of God, yeah. and, and that's that's why it yeah. that's why it's not a function of belief, right? Yeah, absolutely, it's right. not a function of belief at all. Right, right. And it doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim. It doesn't even matter if you're one of these killers. Right, it goes around beheading people. Right, right, right. And and which is which is you um, know, and it doesn't matter what their belief is. Right, and, and they're still going to face the same things we do. Yeah. Yeah, and the you know at the end of the day here, um, we've we've done something very simple, which is in Orthodox religion we tend to separate. And I'm talking about Western religions here. We we tend to separate ourselves from God, and in modern science we tend to separate the observer from the observed, and both of them need to be put together. And lo and behold, oh, we are the world after all. Right, and so 
it becomes sort of much simpler way to look at things. Now, well, you know, it, it's this this new Russian discovery as of a couple of months ago. They are now able to scientifically verify that the particle and the wave are the same thing simultaneously. Right. The linear and the nonlinear are the same thing simultaneously. Science today, if it cannot uh, accommodate entanglement, is no longer valid. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And now, this other uh, topic that I'd like to talk about, which, which it tends to pervade so much of current um, spirituality and science in this, in this topic of vibration. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Everything vibrates. I, I mean, on, on, right, on this yeah. show, on this show, it must be uh, the last 10 shows I've done, so many people are concluding that the ultimate reality is vibration. And I'd like you to talk about what that means to you and 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 how how you interpret that term because you use the term vibration as well. So what what does well, that mean? Everything vibrates. Number one. Okay. So you know, no one can argue with that. Science, priest, right. doesn't matter. Right. Little kid doesn't matter. Everything vibrates. A table vibrates. Everything vibrates. So we know everything is vibration. We can't, we can't argue that. So what they're really arguing is, what is consciousness? And how do we perceive vibration? And, and of what role does vibration have in consciousness? And I do the best job I can in my book, Future Memory, to address that. Because I think we're talking about the actual electron and the, um, and the uh, variable electron. And, and the actual uh, electron is actual. I mean, it stays as it is. So you could call that God. You could call the variable electron us, that, that we vary, we move, uh, we sort of move around the actual electron. Wouldn't it be incredibly wondrous if we used that to look at God and us? that God is the actual electron, and the way God experiences itself is through the variable electron, the virtual electron, that can change and move and turn around and do all kinds of things. So if you're going to do projections, maybe we are all thoughts in the mind of God. You know, you can do all kinds of projections, but when you move out of your mind and move out of your head and go blink, blink, you know, there's a, there's a day out there, and, and I've got a lot of leaves on my, on my front lawn, and I'm looking at that. I'm also cognizant of the fact that I'm in, I'm in communication right now, standing in my kitchen talking to you. I'm in communication with the floor with the walls, with my sink, with the window, with everything outside, with the air, all of my memories, all of creation, all of my loved ones, everything I feel, think, and do are all in conversation right now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and I think that's a beautiful way to put it, and I completely agree that um, that calling us thoughts in the mind of God is so, so similar to uh, George Berkeley, the, the famous Western idealist that I've talked about before in this show. Uh, I was interviewed a couple oh, weeks ago or so with from somebody that was trying to understand um, my own perspectives on things, uh, which are not a lot different than yours, by the way. But, but uh, we were talking about the Big Bang, and he finally said something like, so, so you mean that, that we could all be fragments from a explosion from the mind of God? And I said, that's pretty close to what I think. That's, that, that's pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty close. And, and, so, and so now we move to sort of the big question, which is, what does this all say about hope? 
and about where where we're going uh, because I think underlying your research doctor is is a message of hope oh yeah so so why don't you yeah t- it, it, it brings us to honor who we are as emotional human beings and it helps us to relax and realize that there's more to us and more to life than we could possibly ever conceive or think of. And we can relax into that. And in relaxing into that, everything has more meaning. Yeah. It has more value. It's just that simple. Yeah. Um, what I would recommend for people who, who want to, who want adv- adventure, where they can come to this point of realization, is read my book, Future Memory. Yeah. Future Memory is the only book I've ever written where every, where every sentence, every paragraph, every page is part of the math I used to create the labyrinth. Future Memory is not a book, it's a labyrinth. So when you enter the labyrinth, you do like you do with a sight labyrinth, you stay in the, on the path, because if, if, if you skip read, it won't make sense. So stay on the path, the whole book, read it through. The purpose of the book is to bring your consciousness up to the next highest level possible for you. The book is alive. It it is a brain changer. And I was shown how to do this mathematically by that voice that spoke to me in my third near-death experience. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that... um what what we're doing here is i think we are gradually breaking down the walls yeah that stand between us and who we really are and and that would mean that who we think we are and who we really are and what who we really are is something a lot better than <laughs> yep. who we think we are i mean and you put it yep. in your book about how how we're we're you know we're thinking too small I mean, this. I mean, I'm amazed, and I have a, an article I'm just about done with, and I haven't figured out the exact title, but it's something like the the logical examination of the evidence shows that we're really divine creatures, uh, where modern science is telling us we are sh- we are uh, you know descended from the apes with doomed doomed sh- uh, doom doom lives. We're all co-creators with the creator. Right, we're, right. We're divine beings. Right, right. And it's so it's such it's such a more optimistic viewpoint. And That's in true. right in the past, it's been it's been you know it's been considered to be a, a happy, nice thought, but not having scientific foundation. But it's books like yours and research like yours, Doctor, that I think is helping to turn the tide. So so we've quickly come to the end, <laughs> and, and uh, it's amazing how fast this all goes. But why don't you? You've already mentioned a couple of your books, but I want. But why don't you? Uh, you mentioned the newsletter at the top of the show. Yeah, but, let me mention my my okay. website okay. www.pmhatwater.com, and um, get on my website. Scroll over to uh, where it says newsletters, and sign up for my free monthly newsletter. Yeah. I'm a very curious person. You never know what's going to be in that newsletter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's an archive there. Yeah. And if if you are an experiencer, you want to go, I think it's the June issue, I'm not sure which issue, well, no, it's that further than that, on electrical sensitivity. And I go in depth uh, on do's and don'ts, how to handle electrical sensitivity in storms with electronic equipment. Because if you're an experiencer of any kind, you got to know about that. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, I want to uh, also put put my own little pitch in uh, that of all the near death researchers, I think you want to uh, know something about the work of, of Dr. Atwater here. It's not only good reading, but uh, it's authoritative, and that's that's really what helps move this along. Uh, the and, and give this whole area more credibility because with more credibility, I think we also gain. A broader perspective on who we are and where where we're going. Uh, I want to add here that we tend to forget that we do evolve with the world, and we change, we learn more, and we're constantly 
sort of revamping, revising our perspectives, and and therefore, uh, I think it's important to sort of break break free of some of the orthodox historic belief systems that we may have been attached to on what death means, what afterlife means, and all this, and start listening to those people who have actually been through this. And I think Dr. Atwater's books are a great way to get going with that. Uh, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Doctor, I really appreciate having you on the show. Um, My and, privilege. And uh, again, I've, I've, I think you sh- the listeners should pick up one of her books. The book Dying to Know You is a quick read, but you get a lot out of it, and it's really worth it. This is, again, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.